Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this interview, I'm speaking with Mark Coleman. Mark Coleman is a senior meditation teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, who has taught there since 2000. Mark is the founder of the Mindfulness Institute, bringing mindfulness to companies and institutions, and holds an MA in clinical psychology. Mark is also a writer and the author of Make Peace With Your Mind, How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You From the Inner Critic, and Awaken the Wild, Mindfulness in Nature as a Path to Self-Discovery. His new book, From Suffering to Peace, will be published in spring 2019. And now, my interview with Mark Coleman. Hey, Mark. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Great to be here. I have a question about where you grew up. Yeah, so I'm English. I grew up in northern England in a place called Newcastle, kind of a wild, cold, windy place. Great people, down-to-earth, rootsy. And when you first started your journey toward the work that you're doing now, did that start back then when you were growing up, or did you have glimmers of it then, or is this something you developed later? I think mostly it started when I was in London and I was at college and was unhappy and trying to figure out my busy, crazy mind and, you know, a lot of stress, both inner and outer. And I was a punk rocker and trying to just figure out what to do with my life and stumbled upon a meditation center and immediately connected with what they were doing, connected with a sense of presence that the people had, purposefulness. They just seemed like a common notion of storm. And I immediately took to the practices of mindfulness and loving kindness. They seemed like amazing support to me for my both very negative and critical mind and also for the inner struggle I was going through. And now we fast forward to a lot of the work that you do in businesses. And you've been one of the pioneers in this area. You've been working at this for a long time in business. How did that all come about? Yeah, I've been doing it for about 15 years. Back in the early 2000s, I got a call from somebody at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati saying, hey, I'm a mindfulness practitioner. We have this think tank. We're doing this very creative work with some of our teams and we'd like to have you come out and be part of the team. And so I started with this particular team in 2003, 2004, which was probably before most people were doing this kind of work. Now it's you know, not uncommon right, to have just like what you're doing, mindfulness, meditation, stress reduction in business. But back then it was really unusual. And I was both surprised how receptive people were and also how effective it was. And as we all know, know, working in big corporations, high pressure, high stress, deadlines, for people to access some way to both, you know, clarify their mind, understand themselves, look at their emotional reactivity was very revelatory. And so I actually worked with that team for about five years And then from there, took that work, that integration of mindfulness into business, into many, many companies. 
So thinking about over the years that you've been bringing these skills into business, what have you seen in terms of the openness, the receptivity to this, but then also what topics are top of mind right now for people in business? Back when I started, in the beginning, there was definitely a lot of people sitting around the room with arms folded with a slightly skeptical, puzzled look on their face. And as the science started to come out about the efficacy of mindfulness, then people really wanted to know about that. What does mindfulness do for the brain? How does meditation influence performance or self-management or any of those things? So what I've seen is that we've gone from skepticism to openness because of the research, interest in the research, to, okay, we got the research, we know this stuff works, we know enough CEOs and companies are you know, adopting this, so I don't need to hear any more about that, just tell me how to do it, how to practice it, how to implement it, how do I do it with my teams, how do I manage myself, how do I work with my critical mind, how do I take this home to my kids? So I'm seeing much more interest in just give me the nuts and bolts. I'm mostly enrolled and give me the tools. Give me some very practical hands-on resources. So yeah, how about if you give us a few of those? I can imagine somebody that's listening to this saying, yeah, I'd love some practical tips as well. What comes up for you over and over again that you find yourself teaching people these basic skills or things that you find are really helpful for people that they can grab onto quickly to start to bring this into their lives, especially at work? Yeah, well, the great thing about mindfulness practice is it doesn't take time. It doesn't actually take a lot of training, although you can train and go very far in it. It's very accessible. For example, we all breathe, and the breath is one of those very accessible places we can pay attention to as a support for being present. We can notice what our breath is like, usually when we're anxious or stressed. The breath is short. And so if we can take some slow, deep, long breaths, long exhales, that is a very simple way to both get present, calm the nervous system, allow the prefrontal cortex to come a little bit more online. And we can do that sitting at our desk. We can do that as you're standing outside a meeting room waiting to go in. You can do that before a presentation. You can do that anytime you get triggered through email, conversations, pause, take a breath, notice what's happening and then reflecting whether this is a wise time to respond or do you put the email in your draft folder and then carry on. Like you say, we've got to breathe anyway, so <laughs> you might as well make a few of those deep breaths, so that's perfect. We've just recorded with you an excellent seven-part series that's on the Wise at Work app called Freeing Yourself from the Inner Critic. And you also wrote a book about this topic called Make Peace with Your Mind. So you spent a lot of time thinking about this inner critic and I know a lot of us have a serious inner critic, and we can be harder on ourselves than others can be on us. And so I'm curious, what's going on with this inner critic, and how do you actually start to free yourself from it? Well, you're right. Everybody has, to some degree, a critical mind, some worse than others. And I'm sure some of your listeners are thinking, hey, you know, I like my critic. If I didn't have a critic, I wouldn't be able to make quick judgments and, you know, make snap decisions and... So we're not talking about the mind that's helpful, you know, in terms of evaluation, assessment, discrimination. What I'm talking about is the negative judging voice in our heads that's always either dismissing or negative towards ourselves and towards others. And looking at what's wrong, what's not enough, what's problematic, 
where we're deficient, where we lack. And the net result of that voice is we feel bad, we feel stupid, we feel shame, we feel inertia, we feel foggy-brained. And so that critical voice that mostly we've inherited from childhood, from early messages that we might have received, we internalize those voices, those ideas, those thoughts as basically we're not good enough. Or we feel a sense of imposter syndrome. We feel like if people knew what we were really like, if we were found out, think we were fraud, that we get fired, whatever. So it's essential that we come to understand this voice because it undermines our capacity, does not support effective functioning, and makes us feel lousy. So we can begin, and one of the reasons why mindfulness is so helpful is it helps understand and be aware of our mind, of our thoughts, of the content of our thoughts, whether they're useful or not, how negative or not they are. And with that observing awareness, we can also create some space. We can create some discrimination. So we're not so buying into all the messages that's coming from the inner critic. Because unless we have that space and discernment, we're going to be both bombarded and somewhat oppressed by. And that kind of incessant thinking both makes us feel less than and does not support us to function well in work or anywhere. One simple example comes to mind about working with a critic is I was working with a student. He was actually a theater director. And some professions lend themselves to more inner critic because their whole work is around being criticized by, in this case, the audience or theater critics. And he was particularly persecuted by a judging mind. And on this meditation course, he noticed it didn't stop there. His critic was then beating him up for not meditating well or not eating well or whatever it was, the critic follows him around. And at some point, he's walking down the hill, taking a walk, and his critic's on his case about something. And he has this moment, this epiphany of, you could say awareness or mindfulness. And he just realized, oh, this critic thing it's just a bunch of words. It's just a bunch of thoughts that I, for whatever reason, prioritize, give authority to, listen to, and therefore feel terrible most of the time. But it's really just a bunch of thoughts that aren't actually real, that it's just an opinion from this voice in my head. And that epiphany didn't, of course, stop the judgments from flowing, and as often, mindfulness doesn't stop what's happening, but it does change our relationship. And there was something that, when we have those kind of insights, something shifted where after that time, even though the critic could get on his case about things, he was aware, all right, this is just a bunch of words that if I feel miserable, if I listen to and take too seriously. So imagine we have that thought that comes up that you know, you're beating up on yourself. What's a good thing that you can do to start to address this in the positive ways that you've been describing? Well, the first thing is just to notice it, to notice the difference between just a general thought and a judgment thought that makes you either feel bad or stupid. You can make a note of it and just name it. Oh, there I go again, judging, judging. You can bring a little closer attention and ask yourself, is this really true? Is it true that I blew that presentation? Is it true that I'm not 
smart enough for this job? Is it true that I'm going to fail at this project? So we start to bring some discrimination to the thoughts. What I find really helpful is a sense of humor. The critic is a little crazy and a little <laughs> out to lunch in terms of reality. Mm. And you can tell sometimes when the critic's operating, it will usually have at the beginning of the sentence, always, never, mm. or should. Mm. You're always terrible at presentations. Well, is that actually true? So you bring a little discernment. Is it really true I'm terrible at presentations? Well, I may not be the best speaker in the company, but I can do an okay job. Or we can hear it by the, the words coulda, woulda, shoulda, right? The, the critic has 20-20 hindsights, always looking back on your past, your performance, your choices, your decisions. And of course, from 20-20 hindsight, it's easy to criticize ourselves. And it doesn't make sense to beat ourselves up from what happened in the past where we may not have had information about which way the company was going or trends were going or the stock market was going. Yeah, that's great. And I kind of imagine somebody thinking that all makes sense. But if I don't have an inner critic, who's going to keep me on task? As this comes right back around, so I, you know, it's serving me again. What do you say to someone that has that thought? Well, it's a common thought. And I hear it all the time. People say, well, if I didn't have a critic, I wouldn't get out of bed. I wouldn't clean my house. My office would be you know, chaotic and I wouldn't perform as well. And my response to that basically is there are many ways we can motivate ourselves. Right? We can motivate ourselves with a stick with harshness, with cruel words, punishing, shaming, judging, criticizing. But my experience is that doesn't actually lead to optimal performance. If you think about two managers, one who's very critical and harsh and judgmental, and one who's very encouraging and positive and supportive, who are you going to work better for? Mostly mm. the supportive boss. And it's the same with ourselves. When we're chastising ourselves, basically we're amping up our fight-flight circuitry. We stop thinking so clearly. We start to feel you know, bad in ourselves or hopeless or pathetic. And that just doesn't support us to think well, make good decisions, communicate well. And so there are other ways to motivate ourselves. Inspiration, motivation, thinking about what's really important, looking at the bigger picture. That's really helpful for people to get a sense of when this comes up, how to go about just giving it a bit of a break and the reasons why. So thanks for that. So a lot of what we've talked about around this inner critic has been you alone with yourself and your inner critic thoughts. Oftentimes at work, these things come up because you're in a performance review, you're getting a critical assessment, and then that thing kicks in. And what would you say about a situation like that? How would somebody orient themselves when they're in a real live conversation with somebody and they're getting real critical feedback that oftentimes just triggers them and amplifies this whole inner critic? Yeah, well, I think you're pointing to a very common situation. You know, performance review particularly, a good manager will always be pointing to something the way you can develop and grow. And what does our mind do? Because we have a negativity bias, it fixates and obsesses about the one piece of negative critical feedback and we get paralyzed or it provides a certain kind of ammunition for the critic to say see I told you you should have tried harder you should have done better you should have you know worked harder on that presentation or that project in the moment it's not easy and that's where we use other skills right around how mindfulness helps when we're triggered, right, how do we find a sense of groundedness? How do we calm? How do we feel, you know, say, you know, taking deeper breaths, feet on the floor, grounding yourself either with breath, 
for example, as a way to just not get reactive and defensive. And then really after the fact, it's when the critic comes in. It's usually when like three in the morning we wake up and that performance <laughs> review is replaying itself. Mm-hmm. And just to be really mindful of how distorted our perception is. We think we see clearly, but we actually highlight and pinpoint mostly on the negative. When we see that, it's like, okay, so I got this critical feedback. And what else did they say? How else can I look at what my strengths are, what positive feedback I got? So we're really taking in a balanced view. One of the areas that you're quite well known for is your Awake in the Wild nature trips, teacher training, the book you have written in the past called Awake in the Wild about the power of nature, really, and how nature can amplify a lot of what we're looking for in the mindfulness space. I know for me, when I'm in nature, I'll suddenly feel a different sense of calm. I can more easily sense the interconnection of everything. And just generally, for me anyway, it just calms my system right away. You've had a lot of experience of taking leaders into retreat settings, writing about this. What is it about nature that keeps drawing you back and drawing you to connect both the business and the nature together? Well, many reasons. One, I just simply love being outside and the aliveness, the beauty, the richness, the vitality Living in the Bay Area, it's a beautiful place to be outside, hiking, biking, kayaking, whatever. I think more recently, you know, especially in the last 10, 15 years, where more and more of our time at work is oriented to a screen, to a flat two-dimensional screen, that however beautiful the screen is, whatever amount of pixels there are in the screen, it's still a screen. And it's not, you know, the richness of life. And so... For me particularly, I'm very aware of that contrast and how important it is to take our attention away at times when we can from our screens, get outside, get fresh air, which is good for the brain, move the body, which is good for the body and the brain. And I find that I actually think really clearly. Whenever I go on a walk, I tend to walk alone out in nature, hiking, and I get my most creative, clear, insightful thoughts. And so there's something about when we're outside where our brains are stimulated but not stressed, whereas in the city we get engaged but the brain has to work overtime. And so one new scientist called this quality of soft fascination happens where we become curious and open about the surroundings, which is engaging, enlivening. You know, it makes us happy. Most people feel better, happier, more relaxed, less stressed, more replenished. And so I think in terms of resilience, which is a really important quality in life and particularly at work, particularly because the stress levels are higher and the expectations are higher and the need to be so plugged in at all times, it's essential that we find resilience building skills. And nature, in my experience, is a very quick and nourishing way to do that. When it reduces stress levels, all the biometric markers for stress go down, cortisol, blood sugar, heart rates, etc. And it also it's uplifting. We feel joy. We feel, as you said, connection. We feel lightness. We feel space. And it's essential that we tap into something that's nourishing. Otherwise, you know, it dampens the spirit. So imagine you're in a office park and there's not a lot of quote unquote nature around. 
yet you do have your lunch hour or your break time. How do you bring yourself close to nature, even if it's not the type of nature we normally think, the beautiful, wild, pure nature of our mind's image when we call up nature? How do we do it in like this office park setting? That's a very common experience for people. And I've worked in plenty of places like that too, office parks, industrial neighborhoods. And if I have a lunch break, you know, I'll have my lunch wherever that's happening, but I'll always try and get outside. I'll walk around the parking lot. I'll walk around the streets. I'll walk around. Just the fresh air getting out of air-conditioned buildings, I feel more awake. There's always wind. There's always sunlight or clouds or I mean, the scent of whatever season it is. There's rain. You know, there's usually a tree or two or something. I mean, nature's everywhere. You just have to look up. And there's the sky and clouds and wind and stars. And so no matter how grim the place is, there's still always some elements available. And that's very nourishing if you tune into that, even if it's the grasses coming up through the cracks in the pavement. And then how do you tune into that? What would be a way to orient yourself in that scenario to just tune in more closely? Yeah. So the simple thing is just notice the non-man-made things. So notice what's here that's unconstructed. Sky, clouds, wind, air, temperature, rain, moisture, dryness, earth, plant life. Right. There's a lot of non-human-made stuff everywhere. And I did this in London. I went to college in East London, and you know, pretty run-down, pretty urban, concrete, and depressed at the time. And I would make a conscious effort, this is when I started practicing mindfulness, to focus on that which brought me joy. And it was the trees, it was the grasses, it was the odd flower, the odd bird, and it's everywhere. You just have to orient your attention. So let's talk a little bit about your personal practice. Do you have a set practice that you have every day, or do you find yourself experimenting around the edges with your practice? What's that like for you? Well, my main practice, both in meditation and actually in life, is what we call open awareness. Simply being present to what's happening, to the flow of your experience, and the attention more being with an open quality of awareness, where you're just simply present to and allowing what's there. And of course, that's always moving, shifting landscape, thoughts, feelings, breath, sensations, etc., you're grounded in the body, grounded in the breath, but also open to other experience. And that's sort of my predominant orientation, both in and out of meditation. How do I just simply be present to whatever's happening? And I also like to experiment. And currently I'm exploring working with breath in a very specific way through what's called pranayama, which is very regulated forms of breathing, which is very grounding and calming to the nervous system. I'm also experimenting with Wim Hof breathing, which is a particular type of breath that has a powerful effect on the body and the mind. And I think it's useful both to have a steady practice and also to be open and creative so your practice doesn't go stale and that you keep that quality of curiosity alive. Yeah, I agree. I find it's fun to have this basic practice, but then just kind of notice where that aliveness is and kind of just keep trying different things. It's just you as an experiment. You just wrote another book. I'm just finishing up that book, and it's called From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness. 
So we hear a lot about mindfulness these days, especially, and have for a little while. So what would you say is the true promise of mindfulness, or what are some of the things that you've brought forward in this book that we might not have heard before, or that is fresh and relates to this kind of promise, if you will? Yeah, well, it's a big question. I mean, it's why I took a whole book to write the answer to that question. So... You know, I'm trained in a tradition that looks at the whole human experience, right? Both the joy and the struggle. And there's plenty of struggle in life. And the fundamental root of mindfulness practice is how do we deal with being human and in particular the ways that we struggle and feel stress and suffer, whether that's through loss, physical pain, through family crisis, through mental health challenges, you name it. There's a lot of places we can struggle, work, pressures, etc. And so the point of mindfulness practice is the cultivation of awareness to understand ourselves, to understand, well, where is it in particular that I'm struggling? Where is it that I'm feeling unhappy, stressed, burdened, fear, anxiety? And then to look at well, what's happening in that? What are the causes for that? In what way am I relating to this situation, this experience, that causes more suffering? And so as we develop awareness, awareness supports understanding and insight and clarity. And as that happens, we begin to see not only the ways that we often make our situation worse, but we also begin to learn, oh, these are ways I can actually find a sense of peace or ease or well-being, even in the midst of my chronic back pain, which I have, or in you know relationship circumstance that might be hard, or your kids going through a stressful time at school, or whatever it is. I wanted to write the book to really frame out a bigger picture, because often mindfulness is associated and reduced to attention or focus, concentration, and not the bigger picture of how this is a fundamental life tool and skill that allows us to know ourselves and to know how we can actually find a way through the challenges of life with some clarity, with some wisdom, with some kindness. And that's possible if we develop the practice in a very full way. Yeah, I love that holistic view thinking about it from all those different perspectives. Mark, how does all of what you've just described apply to the workplace? In every way, in that you know, everybody at work is dealing with stresses and challenges, both personal team challenges, challenges of the company and the particular vision or reorganization or whatever the company's going through. You know, I've worked with a lot of people both in teams and individually. I'm thinking of actually one of the first people I started working with in integrating mindfulness into my coaching practice. And this was probably back in the early 2000s. Uh, Again, when this work was not really happening that much, I was working with a, a CFO from a large hedge fund in San Francisco. And he had four young kids under about six when I started working with him. So big job, big family life super stressed, very difficult boss, and fresh out of the dot-com crisis, and he was really overwhelmed. He said, you know, I need help. <laughs> I got no space, I no time to meditate, but I know you've got some of these skills that are helpful. And so we just 
took various pieces of his day and said, okay, well, where can you start to practice mindfulness? So you commute from Marin County to downtown San Francisco. That's probably the most space you have in your day. Let's make that your mindfulness practice. You get in your car, take a few breaths, notice your body, and then turn off your phone, turn off your radio, whatever, and just be present. When you get to work, take a few breaths before you get out of the car, get into work. So that became his mindfulness practice, just kind of working with the stress, calming, grounding, focusing. And after a few weeks, he's like, wow, I've got this amazing commute. I drive over the Golden Gate Bridge every day, and I've never really noticed it. I'm so caught up in my head and my worries. And, and so that became this first sort of door into, oh, this mindfulness stuff really actually helps you enjoy and appreciate your life. And even though it doesn't take the stress away from work, at least when I get there, I'm really relaxed. And when I get home to my kids, I'm not carrying the work burden so much because I've actually taken some time to get present and let that go. And so we just began to weave in these building blocks into his day. He would take a few minutes at lunchtime, close his door, and take a few minutes to breathe and just be present to what's going on in his, his experience. He noticed how it was started to influence his communication. Right? As he was becoming a little more mindful, a little more aware, a little less reactive, a little less knee-jerk sort of response to people and stresses. And so it just was this beautiful flowering of how this very simple practice, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of body, being present, noticing your mind, coming back here to what's happening, that that began to ripple into pretty much everything he did. And he realized he was in the wrong job, quit that job, found a much better company, and his life just blossomed, actually. Beautiful to see. Mark, thanks so much for your time. Great to be here. Thank you. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.